This is the Unity Community of Central Oregon podcast. Today is all about the Garden of Eden consciousness. So the Garden of Eden, just in case you don't remember, was the story about the, the state of affairs at the very beginning. When people were created, they were created to live in Eden. So the story goes. Now remember, this is sacred story. It was created in order for the people of the time, the Hebrew people, to have an explanation of who are we and where do we come from. And so like every people of the time in a pre-scientific era, they spoke in sacred story, in myth. And sometimes people think, oh, a myth, it's just a story. But that's not true. It is a story that holds seeds of truth, that is designed to help us to remember something that we might otherwise have forgotten. The Hebrew people were a very mystical people, and they spoke in symbolism. And they had a language that had multiple meanings, even on a literal level, for any given word. Hence, there's a lot of mistranslation in the Bible because the wrong meaning was chosen by a literal culture who wrote things down. But the Hebrew people themselves were quite mystical. So when they talk about, in the beginning, there was this beautiful garden of Eden, and God walked in the garden, and humans walked with God. They are speaking in mystical terms, and they are describing a state of being when, where we are not separate. We are not separate from the beauty of the world around us. We are not separate from our understanding of ourselves as divine. It is a time of perfect tranquility, of abundance, of harmony. The Garden of Eden, Eden comes from a Hebrew word that means plentiful and splendid beyond all levels. It was never meant to indicate there is this piece of geography called Eden, and if you get out there with your archaeological crew, you can find it. That's not what it means. It means a state of consciousness. Now, was this state of consciousness in material form? I personally don't believe it was. But maybe. It, it isn't, to me, worth arguing about. It's just clear that we're not in that state of consciousness primarily today. And so what happened? According to the story, there was... Uh, God had told Adam and Eve that there is this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you can't eat of. All these other trees in the garden, including the tree of life, 
go ahead and eat. But don't eat that, because if you eat from that tree, you will die. So that would be similar to saying, you know, go ahead, eat any of the food in the garden, but that poison ivy over there, don't touch that. That's not anything where there's cruelty involved. It's just recognizing that some paths work and some paths don't. And that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a path that doesn't work. What is that? To me, it's a consciousness. It's a consciousness of separation. And when they talk about the devil in the form of a serpent... So realize that this is nothing against snakes. The serpent was the religion that they were most in conflict with at the time, the Canaanite religion, um, because the snake is really a symbol of, of life that continues and is restored as the snake sheds its skin, its transformation. So there's nothing bad about snakes, but in the story, this is code for don't be tempted over there by the Canaanites. Stick with the true God that we believe in. That's what that means. But in the story, the snake tempts people, and he says, oh, God just doesn't want you to have this knowledge because then you'll be just like God. And this, and as the story continues, you see God acting like a, a toddler who's had somebody take his toy away. And, and well, if they, if they have that knowledge now, we can't let them stay here. They have to go. You know, it's just nothing that is in alignment, if you take it literally, with anything that we would consider the divine to be. But, but what they're really saying is that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is about a shift in consciousness that takes us out of oneness. If all is one, if we are one with God, then all is good. But when we, st- when we shift into a consciousness of separation, when we say, well, this over here is good, and this over here is not good, we have made separation. And we do it to ourselves. We say, well, I'm good, and you are not. But under that is always the belief that I'm not good, or I wouldn't have to prove it. And so we suffer in our culture from this belief that there is something wrong with us. There is something wrong with each other. There is something, there's something missing. And all of this is not truth. It is not true that we are separate. That is the fallacy that took us out of the Garden of Eden. There is a wonderful book I've been reading called the Mo- Our Beautiful World, Our Hearts Know is Possible by Charles Eisenstein. It's such a rich book. And it's, the book talks about how there's an old story that's been going on for a long time. And that story is one where separation rules and struggle is so prominent. And we have to struggle to be okay. So 
when, when that is true, we suffer because we can never have enough. We can never be enough. And that's what he's talking about in this book. And that it's time for a new story, the story of reunion, where we come back. We come back to the Garden of Eden, where we're all together, where we know ourselves as divine. And he has this one passage that I really love. I love so much of this book. I'd, I'd stand here and read the whole thing to you if I thought I could get away with it. But, um, but there's this one part called The Three Seeds that I love. Once upon a time, the tribe of humanity embarked upon a long journey called separation. It was not a blunder, as some, seeing its ravages upon the planet, might think, nor was it a fall, nor an expression of some innate evil peculiar to the human species. It was a journey with a purpose to experience the extremes of separation, to develop the gifts that come in response to it, and to integrate all of that in a new age of revolution. Hold that thought for a minute. Instead of looking around the world at all the things that appear to be wrong with it, And saying, wow, have we messed up. What if we say we are on this journey and we are seeking gifts, treasures that come in response in all those fairy tales? There is a quest, and the hero and heroine of the quest have to go out and face hardships and struggles. And on the other side of that, they find treasures. Treasures mainly within them. They find their own character. So, if we are on such a quest as a species to respond in a different way that brings us back to reunion, as T.S. Eliot says, we go round and round and we come back and find ourselves at the same place. But we know it as if for the first time. What if we are on the spiral of life in order to really discover the wholeness of the love that we are? So, in this parable that Eisenstein is telling, he says, we knew at the outset that there was danger in this journey, that we might become lost in separation and never come back. We might become so alienated from nature that we would destroy the very basis of life. We might become so separated from each other that our poor egos, left naked and terrified, would become incapable of rejoining the community of all being. In other words, we foresaw the crisis we face today. That is why, thousands of years ago, we planted three seeds 
that would sprout at the time that our journey of separation reached its extreme. Three seeds, three transmissions from the past to the future. Three ways of preserving and transmitting the truth of the world, the self, and how to be human. So, these are the three seeds. The first one is transmissions of wisdom. Every sacred tradition has wisdom, and it has the adepts in those traditions who are transmitting the wisdom to us. We find that we are drawn perhaps more to one tradition than another, some to a Hindu tradition, some to a Buddhist tradition, some to an indigenous tradition, some to a Christian tradition, some to a Jewish tradition. These are all traditions, and there are more. We find ourselves drawn to a particular one, but the wisdom embedded in each of these traditions is the same. And so we hold that wisdom And as we study that wisdom and take it into ourselves, the seed begins to grow. Another tradition, another seed, is the indigenous tradition. The indigenous people are those who at some point chose not to continue on that journey of separation. They remained true to the connection with the earth to the connection with each other. They didn't get on the bandwagon and have to have all the new toys and technology and things that we are so addicted to. They didn't have to grow because they knew themselves as whole. And they are teachers for us. We don't have to adopt their rituals, but we have to respect that they have something that we can learn, medicine that we need. The third seed is sacred story. These are the myths, the tales, the fairy tales. They are stories that when you read them, they're never meant to be taken literally, but they have a seed of truth in them. They are there to remind us of something that is really true. And if you think about the stories that you most love, you will see that that is true. Some of them are quite ancient and some of them are new. So whether it's a story, like the story of the Garden of Eden, or something new, like a story of how the Grinch stole Christmas, there is truth that we can harvest from that. And the truth, whatever seed we use is going to help us back to find a state of reunion with all that is. And in that reunion, we find love. Because love is the truth. Love is the real truth. There's another book that I just finished reading called In Love with the World, A Monk's Journey Through the Bardos of Living and Dying. It's by Yanji Mingyur Rinpoche. It's a fascinating story about a young man, he's in his 30s, and he was the abbot of actually more than one monastery in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. 
And he had the idea that it was too easy for him to to access the wisdom of his, his lineage in the setting that he was in, where he was revered by all and he had kind of a cush life from that perspective. And so he decided to go on a wandering retreat for several years. And and so he snuck, he left a note and he snuck out of the monastery late one night. He had ordered a taxi. And so right away, the taxi didn't come on time and he kind of panicked. And then it did come and, and he was taken to a train station. But this man had never used money for exchange. He had never paid for anything in his life. Everything was taken care of in terms of his material needs. And here he is at the train station in Varanasi in India, and he is surrounded by people who are dirty and suffering, and it's crowded and it's smelly, and he's having a lot of reactions already, and he's thinking, it's only been an hour how am I going to make this for three years? And this idea that I have going out and, and begging and, and learning that way, maybe this was a bad idea. But he was so steeped in the practice of meditative awareness of what his thoughts were, what his feelings were, that he was able to persevere. And the story goes on. It's quite a fascinating story. But at one point, when he is finally begging, he begs and he receives some food and he gets food poisoning from it. And, And he actually goes into the process of starvation and dying. And he's continuing to pay attention to his thoughts and his feelings. And he's watching as the life force pulls away from his material body. And he goes through, the bardos are these states of being in that tradition. And he goes through and he is in the bardo where less and less of the material world is true anymore. And he is becoming one with love. And it's so powerful. And he is leaving behind all that is. And suddenly he is pulled out of that because um, a man who he has befriended, an Asian man who had asked him to help him with some of the teachings. This man finds him, recognizes him, gets him to a hospital, and he is brought back to material life through that. And so after he is healed from that, he wants to go right back out and do it because his consciousness is so informed now by what he experienced in that bardo. And this is part of what he says. I felt like an animated movie character endowed with supernatural strength, imbued with acceptance, spacious awareness, compassion, and emptiness. These were the resources, the shelter, and the food that would nourish me for the coming days and years. My heart was expanding with a love that I had never experienced an infinite appreciation that came from the center of my being radiated to everyone. Everyone that I had ever known, family and teachers who had nourished and guided me, friends, the Asian man, the doctors and the nurses, the cremation wall that had supported my back, the trees that had 
shaded me. I felt appreciation for every cloud, every affliction, fear and panic attack for the roles they had played in my pursuit of understanding. And I directed special gratitude for the infection that had blessed my body. To you, my beloved guru, illness of infinite compassion. I bow with 100,000 prostrations to you who guided me to the ultimate truth, who clarified my understanding, who unlocked boundless love. I offer gratitude forever. And he went on from there. He went on for several more years to just accept whatever came his way with so much gratitude. He was no longer bound by the idea of separation. He would notice, did it please him or not please him, but it didn't matter to him. He was in love with the whole world. And that, I believe, is the Garden of Eden consciousness. That is what we are called to be and to do, is to love it all. Accept it all. And we can only do this by recognizing that we are one. That that flower of life, that sacred geometry is a truth. That we are here to embrace the connection that we have with everyone. Not to discriminate and say, oh, not you. But to be curious, when I notice something that is different about you than it is about me, then that is an invitation. It's an invitation to deepen my love. If you think about, since we're talking about gardens, if you think about a garden or a farm, you don't want to always plant the same crop. Farmers know this. They vary their crops because if they don't, they will deplete the nutrients in the soil. And we are the same. We can't just be around people who are just like us. We need to be around a variety. We need to welcome that which is unfamiliar, that which causes us to stretch and grow. Then we are truly in the Garden of Eden. This week I invite you to really breathe into the reality that everything around us is an outpicturing of the truth of who we are. Everything around us is life. Everything around us is a call to love. Let yourself imagine if your breath became a call and response to life. How beautiful would that be? And if we did it together, Thich Nhat Hanh said, the next incarnation of Buddha will be a Sangha. Matthew Fox said, the coming the second coming of the Christ will be the Christ consciousness in all of us. We cannot do this alone. 
we must recognize that we are all in this together, co-conspirators in life. A conspirator is one who breathes together. So let us breathe a call and response to life. Let us go home to the garden. Namaste. Namaste.